Well, praise God. This is a fascinating gospel, the gospel again of John. I hope you've enjoyed going through it. Uh, It's amazing to see even the whole point of the gospel. The whole point of the gospel is we have these various different teachings. We have these various different events, these various different um, works that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, does. And as they're presented to us, you know, we are to look at them, we're to observe them, and then we're to believe on them as we see again who Jesus Christ is. And as we believe on Jesus Christ, we have life through his name. And one of the ways it portrays that we might have life through his name or really teaches us how to believe on Jesus is it gives us the various different responses. I, I don't know if you've noticed that through the Gospel of John, but there's all kinds of various different responses to the words and works of Jesus Christ. So when you look at uh, John chapter 6, and we have the healing, or not the healing, the feeding of the 5,000 in the wilderness, they follow him all the way to uh, Capernaum, and we have this teaching of the Lord Jesus. You know, and you have these various different responses. The vast majority leave, but we have the disciples who stay, and they ask various different questions. And we learn, again, how we are to respond to Jesus. You can also see it in John chapter 9. John chapter 9, we have a healing of the man who happened to be again born blind. And you have all these various different responses. You have the responses of the religious elite, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. You have the response of his parents. You have the response, again, of the man himself. And then at the, uh, at the raising of Lazarus also, you have all these various different responses. And what it teaches us is not only how to respond, but how not to respond so when we come to this section that happens to begin right here, we realize what has just gone on. You know, they've just sat down. They've just, again, reclined, getting ready to celebrate the Passover, what God has done, and his great deliverance. But Jesus gets up from the meal, takes on that form of a servant, and here he washes their feet. And you can imagine how humbling it was. Uh, here they are filled with pride, filled with self-importance. Here, Here's the creator of the universe who gets up to wash their feet. You know, and uh, it was a picture of the greater humiliation that would come uh, just hours later when uh, he'd be taken, he'd be betrayed, and uh, he'd be taken out the next day to be crucified. And after that, you have a response. You know, or, uh, let, let me just read verse number 21, because the, after that, you have the response of Jesus. In verse number 21, again, it records this. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And if you ever want to understand the heart of Jesus, it's right here, isn't it? I mean, I find this absolutely amazing. Jesus, Jesus is just incredible, isn't he? You know, he takes our vision and he just enraptures it on, on him because he's so unlike us. I mean, think about it. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt what is going to happen in just hours. You know, not only is he going to be betrayed, but he's going to be taken. There's going to be this mock trial. He's going to be found guilty. They're going to punch. They're going to spit on him. They're going to pluck out his beard. He's going to be taken. He's going to be scorched. He's going to be crucified. And here, here, uh, the wrath of God is going to come upon him again as he happens to be our sin bearer. And the thing that grieves his heart, the thing that takes up his spirit, is that one of his own, one that he truly loved, is going to betray him. You know, if you ever want to see the heart of Jesus, it happens to be again right here. But the, but the thing that we just discussed, and the thing that I want us to see tonight, is the response to this. You know, and there's basically only two responses. There's one of the disciples, and one of the betrayer, who happens to be again Judas. 
And remember, these sections are in the scripture that we might examine our own responses to whom Jesus Christ again happens to be. You know, and I think one of the greatest fears of God's people, God's true people, is when we look, look into our own hearts and we realize, even as we sung about tonight, the propensity to wander away from the God that we love, the Savior, and again, and the Lord. And here's the, here's the one thing you have to realize about Judas and, and about anybody. Nobody, again, all of a sudden takes a leap. You know, it might look like that at time where all of a sudden here they're in Christ and now they're out of Christ, here they're following Christ, and here they're not following the Lord Jesus Christ. But what it is is one step after another step. Again, towards sin, away from Jesus Christ, towards the object that happens to begin of their love. You know, and the objects, again, that they walk towards are just so grand, aren't they? There's just so many of them. They're all around. Could be sensuality. It's one step after another step after another step in that direction. Could be materialism. Could be anything that happens to be again in the world. And it's the same with Judas. Judas was no different. You know, it wasn't a giant leap that one time he said, okay, this is enough. And he crossed his arms and he went away from Jesus. You know, we're told, again, very, uh, very early on, that Judas, Judas was the one who carried the money bag, and he used to help himself to it. And you can almost imagine the first time that he took money out of that money bag and spent it on himself, the conviction of sin that must have came over him, the guilt. But here's the thing you have to understand about conviction of sin. Here's the thing you have to understand about guilt. If it truly is not repented of, if it's truly not turned away from, well, let me tell you, the next time you do it, you won't feel as guilty. And the next time you will do it, you won't feel as guilty. And the next time, all of a sudden, you do not feel any guilt whatsoever. In fact, you start looking at it as you're right. And if Jesus will not give the things that I want in this life, then I'm out of here. I'm departing. And my whole point is this, is the betrayal of Jesus, the walking away of Jesus didn't happen in an instant. Didn't happen. Here he is, dedicated to Jesus, and here he is going out. It's one step away from him after another step away from him. And these passages are really good because they allow us, as the people of God, to look at our own lives to look at our own hearts, to look again at what direction we are truly going in. So I want us to look at that for a few moments this afternoon. I hope we can stay awake. If we can't, praise God, I forgive you already, okay? Uh, but uh, but uh, I want us to see this. And the first response I want us to see is that of the disciples. I think, I think this is really interesting. Look at what it says in verse number 22 and following. The disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. You know, one of the glories of the Word of God is that it has a sanctifying effect that happens to begin in our life, doesn't it? You know, in other words, it comes into our hearts, it comes into our lives, it convicts us again of sin, it shows us our misdeeds, and it causes us to repent. In other words, it opens it up, it shows us what direction we're going here, what direction we're going there. And, 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 and it causes us to see that guilt. And the reason why is Christianity is not principles. You know, it's not just these laws or these commands that happen to be there, but it's a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And we sung about that, right? Our love for Jesus, which compels us to want to obey him. 
So when we see ourselves going away, when our sin is exposed through the word of God, here's what the believing heart does. The believing heart trusts in Jesus. It steps towards him and never away from him. And that's exactly what you see here. And, and it's interesting this very night because you see this up and down with, with, with the disciples. You know, at one moment, they're, they're proud and obnoxious. And the next moment, they're humble and confessing their sins. Next moment, they're proud and obnoxious. And you see that. And it's so much like our lives also. But you can see it again right here in this because uh, I don't think we really understand everything that happens to be going on. It says in verse number 22, it says, The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And I think when you look at that, uncertain of who he spoke, and our minds are just riveted all of a sudden on Judas, isn't it? You know, he's the easiest one to pick out. He plays the hypocrite so much that nobody sees him. And I think we missed the whole intended purpose of the passage. And that is, again, there's a good... Think of just what's gone on. Here is the creator. Here is the Lord of glory. Here is the creator. Here is the sustainer. Here is the great I am. And he bends down and he washes their feet and humbles their heart. And then he announces, one of you will betray me. Now, I don't know about you, if I was there, I would wonder if it was me. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? If your sin was exposed, if your arrogance was exposed, if your pride was exposed, you know, in such a visual manner, wouldn't you say, I wonder if it's me? Because that's what exactly the, the uh, disciples do. In fact, over in Matthew chapter 26, beginning of verse number 21, it says, And as they were eating, he said, here it is, here it is. Truly, tr I say to you, one of you will betray me. And listen to the response. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to one another after, to, to say him one after another, is it I, Lord? And you can imagine because you can almost read the emotion in it. You know, here it is. Oh, oh, is it I, Lord? They've seen the arrogance. They've seen the pride that happens to be again right there. In other words, there's not a looking around. Oh, there's, there's Matthew, that tax collector. He's never gotten over a love for this world. He used to use his position to take, take advantage of other people. And I think it's him. I think it's him. I think, again, he's in love with the world. They never look over at Peter and say, oh, Peter, Peter talks a good game. You know, he talks a good Christianity. He talks a good devotion. But he's always putting his foot in his mouth. It's got to be him. And, of course, nobody expects Judas, but the whole point here is that they're not looking around at one another. They're looking at their own selves, wondering if they happen to be the betrayer, wondering if they happen to be one. Lord, is it I? Is it me that has done that? And that's what the conviction of sin does. That's, that's what the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we start seeing these things, when we start to come in contact with the word of God, then, then we want more of the word of God. We want more of the exposure. We want to see the remedy of the situation. And that's exactly what the disciples do. You know, they want to find out more of this situation. So we see that because that's what a growing love does. You know, in verse number 23, it says, One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table uh, at Jesus' side. Now, let me just say this just before we... Talk about what Peter said. We have to identify the one whom Jesus loved in this passage of Scripture. Now, if you've been a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ for a while, you're saying, I know who it is. I know who it is. I know who it is. And it happens to be John, the writer of this gospel. And let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's no reason to, to uh, doubt that. 
You know, John, again, at that time would have been uh, very young, and he's probably, again, the only disciple that happens to be um, alive at this time at the writing of this gospel, and he's an old man at this time, and he's been humbled and humbled and humbled, you know, and he just doesn't look look at himself as worthy to put himself in the narrative. So he uses this phrase over and over throughout the gospel of John, basically this, the one whom Jesus loved. You know, and you can see it at the cross, you know, at the cross in John chapter 19, it says, by, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And then it says, When Jesus saw his mother, and listen what it says next, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Mother, woman, behold your son. He takes care of his mother. But notice that phrase there, the one whom Jesus loved. And we also see it in John chapter 20, in verses uh, 2. This is after the resurrection. And it says, so she ran, speaking of Mary Magdalene, and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Do you see that expression again? You know, and let me just say this, because I don't want us to misunderstand the phrase. The one whom Jesus loved does not mean this. It does not mean that John doesn't love Jesus, right? But it's talking about the prior love. It's talking about the preeminent love. It's talking about the love that causes the other love, right? It's talking about the elective love and also the relational love of the Lord Jesus Christ for his own, right? We love him because he what? first loved us, right? And that's what it's talking about here. And so we've been loved by Christ, right? We sing about the love of Christ. We sing about what he has done for us as sinners. And that love causes us to love Jesus. And therefore, when we see sin, when we see that propensity to wander and betray the Lord Jesus and even forsake the Lord Jesus Christ, what it causes us to do in those who happen to be true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is to cling on him, to walk towards him again, to truly take his word and apply it to our hearts and and our lives, to stay close to this Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what we call that? You know what we call it? We call that spiritual warfare, right? And the battlefield is our human heart, isn't it? You know, um, that's the battlefield. You know, what Lord, what Savior, what what God are we going to worship? It's either going to be Jesus or something else. But Peter, you know, the quizzical one, wants to find out if it's him, wants to find out if it's another disciple, you know, that happens to be there. They've been discussing it by themselves. And I wish we had more in Scripture, but I know this is absolutely sufficient, what God has given us. But I think it would have been a fascinating conversation to listen to how the disciples discussed who is the betrayer. And even hear what Judas again put in all of that, because he played, again, the hypocrite just perfectly around the disciples at this time. But we read in, in uh, verse number 24 and for, verse number 25, so, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now think about it, because this shows a little change that happens to be again in Simon Peter. I mean, he's going to go back to himself again but it shows a little change because he, you know, he announces everything, you know, and he would be the one who would stand up, you know, in the middle of the meal and say, Lord, just tell us who it is. But he's a little bit more suspicious of his own human heart. 
his own propensity to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me uh, say that this scene right here, I think for a lot of people, is very uncomfortable. You know, especially in our modern vernacular, um, we talked, uh, I'm not sure if it was the last time we were in a text or a, or a few lessons before, but the painting uh, by Leonardo da Vinci, you know, The Last Supper. And to the right hand of Jesus, which happens to be the honored position, which he would have been very close because it says again that he's leaning on Jesus, is you have the Apostle John. And the Apostle Paul, uh, John would have been young at that time, and he's drawn again in a very effeminate way, you know, and leaning on the chest of the Lord Jesus. And it tells us, again, he's leaning on the chest of the Lord Jesus. You know, and I think a lot of people, when they look at the language here, are really turned off by it. But let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's nothing sensual or sexual here. You know, uh, we live in a different culture. And let me say, in a culture back, the, back then at those low-lying t- t- tables, this was rather common. And let me just say this, although it, would be, um, uh, uh, although it might turn us off, in the ancient culture, for two men to be good friends, brothers in arms, it wasn't uncommon for them to go down the street hand in hand. You know, that really turns us off again today. But what it was was a sign, again, of intimate friendship. You know, that I consider this person part of the family, a brother, you know, um, uh, for the cause. You know, and that, that didn't turn them away. So when we see this picture again of John, it just speaks again of the intimate love that he has for the Lord Jesus Christ. But the big thing here is the request. Who is it? Because each of them, again, are being really challenged about the sin that happens to begin in their own heart. And that's what... Christians do. That's the way that they respond, isn't it? That we want to know more about ourselves, more about even our propensity to wander, and how we should respond to the Lord Jesus. You know, how we should again respond to him. And I wonder again as we look at our own lives, you know, do we have that process of repentance and faith going on in our own lives where we're trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, where we're following him? Because not only do we see the response, again, of the disciples, we also see the response of Judas. And this is in verses 26 and following. But we'll just read verse number 26 here in the passage. And it says, Jesus answered, here it is, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. You know, and I, I think it's amazing to look, look at the depths and lengths of hypocrisy. And here's the thing you have to realize is that whatever you love most in this life is going to come out. I mean, I mean, it, ha- it can't help to come out. And no doubt, even when you look at Judas, like I say, this is a slow progression. You know, when he comes to Christ, he sees something in Christ, he, he's drawn towards uh, Jesus in some way. You know, and he has some sort of a faith that happens again in Jesus, but his true love, again, begins to grow. Isn't it true? You know, as time goes on, as time goes on, as time goes on, our love for whatever's preeminent in our life will grow in our life. And when it grows in our life, if you can imagine you're on a journey and Jesus is over here and my love is over here, I'm taking a step towards my love, towards the thing that I want, towards, again, this goal, this object, this person, or whatever it happens to be in my life. But every time I take a step in that direction, I'm taking a step away from Jesus Christ. You know, and here's my whole point, because God is a God of love, because he is a God of mercy. 
He wants to expose the human heart. He doesn't want the hypocrite to continue in hypocrisy, but he wants him to come clean, and he will expose that. And he many times exposes it, again, through that process where people, again, uh, their natural loves go, go out. And this is what you see in this passage of Scripture. God knows, Jesus knows all about the hypocrisy of a Judas, and he, and he brings it out. You know, and, and, and it's amazing to look at this, because if you look at the table... Uh, and as we uh, talked about Leonardo da Vinci, we know that's not the way it, way it happened to be. We often talk about a table being low, but the table that was low, this would have been a big round table. You know, and when you look at it, again, when somebody's here and somebody's there, there's a good distance that happens to be again before them. So this is the thing you have to understand. When they were reclining at the table, Judas had to be really nearby. And if we, put, if we put John at the right, which he probably was, you know, that meant Judas was where? He was probably at another favored position. And what position would that be? On his left hand. And Jesus is the host. So Jesus would have, would have decided, this is what the host decided, where everybody would be sitting in, in that meal. You know, and so when he dips, and this is a favor that is granted by the host to dip a piece of bread and give it to a favored guest. And what he's doing to Judas is not only identifying him as the betrayer, but allowing him another opportunity, another sign of grace, another sign of love towards him to repent, to truly turn from his sin and realize who Jesus Christ is. Happens to be, but right after that in the narrative, we read this. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, let me just say this. A lot of people feel sorry for Judas. You know, I, uh, I think a lot of times we read our Christianity, especially the common uh, views of spiritual warfare, into the text. In other words, Judas is just a pawn. This is not him. He's not doing what he wants. And let me just say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, just as we're filled with the Spirit of God, it means talking about being controlled by the Spirit of God. We yield to Him. We fill our hearts and minds with His Word. You know, we seek to walk in Him. Just as we're filled and controlled by the Holy, Holy, uh, Holy Spirit and want to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's a desire that happens to begin in our heart. Judas has a desire, and that's a, that desire is to be filled with the things of this world, and therefore he follows the God of this world. He follows him again. He walks away from the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can see this in verse number 30 because it says this. So after receiving the morsel of bread, look at what he did. He immediately, not Satan, not him and Satan, you know, he immediately went out, and it was night. So he freely and volitionally got up and left Jesus Christ. I mean, it's one of the saddest verses that happen to be in the whole text of Scripture, isn't it? You know, how should he have responded? Well, James chapter 4 and verses 7 and 8 says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Listen to what he says. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts. Here's repentance. You sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, what's he telling us? Right, right, right. Here it is. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here it is over here. No, I'm not going to go in that direction. But I'm actually going to go closer to Christ. And when we truly do repent, when we truly do confess our sins, when we truly do submit ourselves to the Lord, we actually become stronger in the faith. 
we actually grow in our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and that's exactly, again, what, uh, what, what, what is being conveyed by James. You know, and, and, but it's incredible, isn't it? Because we can play act, we can play act, we can play act, and we can play act, and we can fool everybody. In fact, we're told in verses 28 and 29 um, what, what all the rest saw. Now, no one at the table except uh, John the apostle, now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what, what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. It's incredible, isn't it? You know, of all the people not to expect, you know, is the one that we think, because we're reading back into the text, the one that you should suspect, and that happens to be again Judas. And it tells us how good he was playing the hypocrite, really. Now, what do they think? They thought he was going on. Now, now, there is a little oddity that happened to be in the text, because this happens to be Passover, and some who scorn and ridicule the word of God will say this can't have taken place because all the shops would be closed. But you have to realize that there was really two Passovers. It's a way that they numbered the days. So those outside of Jerusalem, those outside of Judea, would celebrate on the Thursday rather than the Friday. Those in Jerusalem numbered their days differently, and therefore they would celebrate here. So all the shops on Thursday evening were open late in case there was any provisions, anything that was needed in order to celebrate the Passover the next day. So they naturally thought that Judas was going out to buy these provisions, either that or giving money that happened to be given of, of the poor, doing something benevolent here on the Passover. And, and it is amazing because I think there's several lessons that we can learn from this text. And one is, is this, and it should be so clear, and it's basically this, you must be born again. Isn't it true? Isn't it true beyond a shadow of a doubt? When you look at Judas, Judas spent three years with the Lord Jesus, right? He saw this man who was white with leprosy and all of a sudden cleansed. He saw this other man with hazed eyes. All of a sudden he could see. He saw this other man who couldn't walk and all of a sudden he could leap, he could jump, he could run. You know, all of a sudden he saw him walking on water. He saw him raise Lazarus from the dead and he preached and had all of these intimate conversations with the Lord Jesus. You know, and if you want to see the wickedness, if you want to see the hardness of the human heart, all you have to do is look at Judas, and you have to hear these words that were spoken by Jesus in, in John chapter 3. You must be born again. In other words, and don't get this wrong, we're not born again because we have repented and we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Here it is. We are born again, and because we are born again, because the Holy Spirit now works on our heart, there's faith. There's repentance. Repentance and faith are gifts of God's grace. And therefore, there is no room for boasting at all. And we should realize that in each one of our lives. You know, there's another lesson that we have to exegete or glean from this passage of Scripture. It's basically this. There's an impossibility of telling who is in and who is out of the faith. In other words, if I look at your life, even if I see all of your good works, even if I see you singing hymns and your eyes are closed and you're praising God, even if you're above reproach, you're, you live that impeccable, holy life to dedication to Jesus Christ, I ultimately can't tell who is in and who is out. 
You know, none of us can. None of us can see the human heart. Now, we give one another what is called, again, the, um, at the right hand of fellowship. You know, uh, when, when we look at your profession of faith and your walk, that happened to begin in your life. But ultimately, we cannot know who is truly in and who is truly out. You know, and we see that in Ju- Judas's life. Judas lived what would look like a very externally holy life. You know, and the reason why I say that is because so often we struggle with this. And I'm not sure why we struggle with it, because the word of God is very clear. Our salvation is not based upon what we've done in the past, not based upon some profession of faith in the past, not based upon, you know, as someone once told me, you know, I can open up chapter and verse, and you can see the tear marks that happen to be again in my Bible. It's not based upon that. It is based upon who we profess today, who we are following today. And why do I say that? Three years that man followed Jesus. Three years he looked like the real thing. And people can follow Jesus Christ for decades, for years and years and years and years and years. And let me tell you, if they forsake Jesus Christ and they're not walking in his ways, let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, they've been playing. Now, they might have not known it. They might have not known it. But they've been playing the hypocrite all along. They were never one true believer. And the only way that we can truly be saved, the only way that we can truly know someone is a born-again believer is if they are true, if they follow Jesus Christ all the way to the end. That's it. You know, today, are you trusting Jesus Christ? Today, are you following him? That's the challenge. But you know what the biggest challenging uh, challenge happens to be in the passage that happens to be right here? It's this. It's this. And please get this. Don't dabble with sin. Isn't it true? You know, Tim uh, brought that up. Don't dabble with sin. Don't ruminate with it in your mind. Don't play around with it, thinking beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can control it in your life. I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, you can't control it. You know, I can't control it. You can't control it. It doesn't matter who we happen to be. We can't control it. So let me, let me give you the warning of the passage. Don't dabble in sin. You know, um... Many a Christian has been destroyed. And, and I think over the last five, ten years, it's incredible how many men in ministry have had their testimonies destroyed because of sensual sin. And let me just say this. For any of us who point fingers at them, I want to say this. All of us are one or two decisions away from wrecking havoc on our testimonies in the Lord Jesus Christ, from walking away from Jesus Christ. That's how close sin is. And let, let, let me say We've said, we've, uh, said this we're, uh, already. It's not a giant leap. It's a slow progression. We start to fool around with things in our mind. We start to imagine various different st- scenarios. Maybe, m- maybe you start flirting with somebody, and that flirtation seems, again, all so innocent, but it seems, again, so, all so appealing in our inner soul. Nothing has been done. Nothing has been said. And all of a sudden, there's a little gentle touch. You know, it's almost like a feeling of electricity just went through you. And you really enjoyed that touch. And whether that touch lead, and here, here, think about this, because the line's here, but it's gone here. It's gone here. It's gone here. Well, well, all of a sudden, it leads to more touching, leaning against one another, and everything else like this. And all of a sudden, you get over here, and you say, how did I ever get here? How did I ever get here? Here it is. Here it is. Remember? Jesus is over there. I took one step after another step after another step 
after another step, and all of a sudden I'm there. And here's the message of Judas's life. Don't dabble in sin. Run away from it. Submit yourself. Draw near to this great God. And let me just say, it's not just sensual sin. It's anything that happens being again in creation. You know, it's amazing to look at our hearts. They're full of idols that want to lead us away from Jesus Christ. And there's one other application I want to bring into the text, and it's basically this. Because maybe you've been coming out to church, and maybe you've been coming out to church, and, you've, and you realize you're a hypocrite. And as long as nobody else finds out you're fine with it, let me tell you beyond a shadow of it, God's going to expose it. You know, and why? Because he really does care about you. He really does love you. But here's the amazing thing. If you're here listening maybe online or listening here today and that describes you, here's the good news about that message. He's extending grace to you. It's just like Judas, you know. Here's this morsel. Here's this grace being extended to you. My plea to you is don't respond like Judas. The saddest verse in this paragraph is the final verse. And it says that, so after receiving the morsel of bread, in other words, his grace, this is what he did. He immediately went out. In other words, left the presence, left the sight of the Lord Jesus. Grace was extended and grace was rejected. Don't reject that grace in your life. Today is the day of salvation. Come to him. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Father, what an amazing passage of Scripture. I thank you so much for it. I thank you, Lord, that we have these various different responses to the ministry of Jesus so we might examine our own hearts and our own lives. Lord, to see if we're truly in the faith, to see, Lord, if sin is enticing us away from Christ. God, I thank you. I thank you for this uh, passage. Just be with us, Lord, that we might work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. We thank you so much. Just be with us as we continue now. In Jesus' name. Amen.